Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, October 27th begins now. On today's show, Ben brings back a good friend, brilliant legal mind, great poker player, and part-time pot columnist, Brendan Schiller. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what's going on this weekend, you need to go to ChicagoReader.com because you're going to find out right there. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky after the show's over, head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. I'll spell that for you. It's J O R A. B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Playing and Pain Friday, and here's why. Well, it's actually, oh, what a week, and Brendan Schiller, dear friend of the show, is standing by. And uh, the reason I'm playing in pain is because, I don't know, <laughs> I thought it would be a good idea today to go get my tooth extracted. I had a cracked tooth, and they said they had to get extracted. They go, oh, I'll get it extracted right before I go on the air. Why not? Because that's the way I roll. So uh, my, uh, I look like a chipmunk. I'm in the <laughs> early stages of looking like a chipmunk, uh, and it's just getting chipmunkier uh, as I sit here. And uh, the pain pill uh, that I just popped uh, hasn't really kicked in yet. It's only ibuprofen, actually. She had more uh, substance of pain pills. But I'm doing the best I can because there's so much to discuss. And Brendan Schiller and I have uh, been talking about it in advance. So I said, let's do this show brendan schiller politico lawyer political strategist political activist and also a poker player extraordinaire uh welcome back brendan schiller well thank you ben i'm glad i get to be part of your flu game podcast you're <laughs> yeah. gonna bring it your best game while in pain and i'm here for it okay so do you want to see uh the excavated tooth or do you just want to continue no. it okay yeah. all right i could show you uh where the tooth was uh looked like uh someone punched me and knocked out my tooth uh all right um so when i uh said what do you want to talk about the first thing you said uh was police contract uh yeah. and um i said okay we have to do that we've been talking about that on the air and the second thing you said uh was congress uh and the change in congress with the republicans um selecting mike johnson uh to be their speaker uh, I think we will start with Mike Johnson and the Republicans because everything else is more or less a Chicago thing. So we'll talk national first uh, and then move uh, to the local. Um, Mike Johnson, a, st- a representative from Louisiana, uh, is right wing, uh, to put it mildly. He's MAGA to the core. Uh, he was D- Donald Trump's hand-picked uh, candidate after Trump vetoed Tom Emmer, the congressman. Uh, on the grounds that Emmer was too, what, liberal, which is such a joke. Uh, I guess Emmer's greatest offense 
uh, was that he voted to certify the election of um, Joe Biden as president in 2020. And so now the Republican Party has officially become uh, the party of denial, the party uh, that says the election uh, really went to Trump, even though, of course, it went to Biden. Uh, and they're just going to run with it as we head into the 2024 election cycle. Uh, we'll start with your general thoughts about where the Republican Party is going in Congress. Brendan Schiller. Yeah, you know, I think what we saw the last three weeks was in real time what we've seen the last six years, seven years, which is a very which is um, with with a party and, you know, maybe half the country inexorably inevitably move to the right out of fear ambition and greed um, and move dramatically to the right i remember in 2015 2016 some so some kind of moderate centrist folks say well at least trump isn't um you know isn't right wing on cultural issues um and i remember in 2016 2017 kind of moderate republicans say well at least he's not as bad as democrats and then over time, everything moved to the left, and then Trump got his three Supreme Court um, justices in, and the Supreme Court moved farther and farther to the right, I said to the left, up to the right. And what we saw over the last 20 days was this process where you saw what are now termed moderate Republicans, folks who were right-wing firebrands four, five, six years ago, like Emmer and Buck, um, try to kind of toe the line and you know just a week ago Ken Buck was like we're not going to vote for somebody who is uh who is an election denier or he's not going to and over the course of 20 days you saw a full complete Republican Congress go through all of the kind of Bowie motions of trying to be somewhat principled and instead completely unify in a relatively short period of time around a very right-wing theocrat that if he was heading any Muslim country, we would call a far right-wing danger. This is somebody who doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. This is somebody who believes that you should go to prison and has actually helped formulate laws in, in Louisiana that ensure that you go to prison um, if you provide abortion or, or, or medical care uh, that, that is in some way, in any way anticipates or participates or is relative to abortion. Somebody who believes that you should be imprisoned if you not only engage in homosexual sex, but if you engage in any type of what he would probably define as kinkier fetish sex. He believes that sodomy laws should exist. Now, sodomy, as was originally defined up until about 20 years ago, and the laws that weren't really that enforced that often, but were when enforced, were only enforced against gay folks, includes anal sex and oral sex. He believes that those people, if you engage in anal sex or oral sex in this country, should be jailed. He honestly believes that. Um, and so we saw in real time uh, what we've been witnessing over the last seven, eight years. But I think, you know, beyond what I just mentioned, the most important thing we saw is an entire 
Republican power structure coalesce around now favoring the concept of autocracy over democracy. And make no mistake about it, when somebody makes a decision to acquiesce, when somebody makes a decision to be quiet about something, and it's in the political realm, they're eventually making a decision to fight for it, right? You can't, and that's what we saw. You can't say, okay, Mike Johnson's my leader and my only elected leader and the only elected uh, branch of government we control. I mean, you know, GOP controls the Supreme Court, but the only elected branch of government that they control, one, one half of that branch, you can't, they can't coalesce around him and say, but we're not going to support all of his ideas. They, they visually and viciously now <laughs> support aut autocracy over democracy. Um, which, you know, in the end comes down to supporting white supremacy. That's where right. we're at. Uh, so here we are. They're out in the open with it. Uh, and um, do you have any second thoughts about the Democratic strategy not to uh, yeah. secure so, Kevin McCarthy? Go. No, not, not to save Kevin McCarthy. I think, you know, while it was happening, and I'm on a couple text strings, I was like, the Dems at this point, when it when Emmer came up, I said the Dems at this point should just vote president because it's going to get worse. They didn't even get a chance to do that, right? Um, uh, I, you know, I, from at least from afar, I have no idea. It seemed like at least the last couple of weeks they were trying to make entreaties. They were doing everything they can to reach to put out olive branches, and it seemed like the number one unifying principle of every single Republican in Congress was they could accept any one of their members, but they could not, they would not be willing to do anything with any of the Democrats. So, I mean, you could say they made a mistake by not voting for McCarthy, but I think looking back on it, um, if a few of them had voted for McCarthy, a few more Republicans would have pulled off and they would have keep pulling off until McCarthy was knocked out. I think this result was the inevitable result. I, uh, I actually, um, not committed to the no the notion that they made a mistake with McCarthy either. I was just throwing that out to see what your thoughts are as a strategist. Uh, I feel <laughs> might as well take it where it's going. And uh, the notion of saving Kevin McCarthy, who has been so untrustworthy uh, and is, uh, so de uh, devious in the way he deals with well everyone, and but in Democrats in particular, I didn't I didn't see it like a worthwhile goal. Um, so let's see where this takes us, I suppose. Uh, we'll have plenty of time uh, to talk about uh, whether they'll get it together uh, to uh, finance the government or will the government shut down in a month or so when uh, the 45-day temporary uh, solution that McCarthy agreed to uh, expires. I want to talk about, do you think this is where the country is? I've been thinking a lot about this, Brendan. Um, you know, uh, it's like the, they're not even trying to pretend as you pointed out like they were a middle ground they have staked a far right position uh and they just are convinced that uh this will get them an electoral victory in 2024 so well, I, I don't think that i don't think this is where the country is and i don't think that they are convinced this is this will give them a electoral victory in 2024 i think a very large portion of them believe in this. I think Mike Johnson is a true believer. And I think a very large portion of them are hoping um, that Donald Trump 
gets convicted that somebody else will deal with their Donald Trump issue and that they somehow can revert back um, to the uh, normie Republicans uh, that of the 2000s. Um, they're, they're out of their, that's just an unrealistic uh, belief. But I, I, I don't think that, I think, uh, you know, whatever the numbers were, um, probably 80, 90 of what would be called moderate Republicans now who really aren't that moderate in their views have an unrealistic view that they just have to keep holding on and keep acquiescing until Donald Trump goes away. I do think this is where 40 to 45 percent of the country is now. I think they've been brought there. I think that um, that with each passing day, Donald Trump creates a new vanguard um, or allows the space for the far right to create a new vanguard vanguard and that stretches um, and brings along with them a large portion of the country. Donald Trump has always played, you know, when 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 the Republican base talks about elites, what they're really talking about is judgmental, is being judged. When when the when the you know when we think about elites, we think, well Donald Trump is an elite. This dude has the power, has the money. When the right-wing base thinks about elite, they think about judge judgment and being judged for being racist or misogynist, or, but they wouldn't put it that way, being judged for not being politically correct. And, and, and when Donald Trump created the vanguard that you don't have to worry, you can say or think whatever you want and you won't be judged, that opens the space for the far right to push a large portion of the country farther right on these cultural issues um, and on some of the economic issues, not as many as they may think. And so that's where we're at. Well, they, they pretty much obliterated economic issues from being, being a talking point. Uh, it, it, and I think this is a, a successful move on their part. There was a story uh, in yesterday's newspaper about how the economy uh, is doing better than anyone expected. And so normally that would play to Biden's strength. And that, of course, has just been obliterated by all the other news in the world, uh, including the war. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I do think there is a, a legitimate reason for the disconnect between how people respond to that and what the economic numbers say. And, and that just comes down to the most basic way people understand the economy is, is their day-to-day -day costs. And the reality is, as much as liberals and progressives like to point to these uh, these meta numbers now, these, these overall numbers, the reality is, is we still are living in a time of the greatest income inequality um, the world has ever seen. And we still are living in time of relatively increased cost of living. So there is actual, there is actual reasons, day-to-day -day real life reasons that there's a difference between how people feel about the economy and, and Joe Biden relative to the economy and these greater macro economic numbers that we're getting every day that, that if we were economists look great. And, and so I think that's a much deeper discussion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That is a deeper discussion. I, I, I will say uh, that inequality, uh, I, you make a very good compelling point about inequality and it's been around, well, my entire lifetime, and it's been getting worse year by year. Uh, so you're younger than me, so it's 
it's also been around your entire lifetime. Yeah, but I saw when it changed, right? We, I was a kid, but I saw when Reagan came in and mm -hmm. we're now in the 43rd year of neoliberalism. And as animated in, in the major cities like the city of Chicago, it was the privatization of assets. It was the reduction of, the, of wages. And, and we may be in the one city with the one mayor who, be, who may be trying to unwind that, but it's been going on for 43 years, and I saw when it happened. Oh, I, I, you know what's funny? You should say this. Yeah, the other day I was uh, having a, a spirited conversation with a dear friend, Adolfo, shout out, El Dragon. And I was reminiscing about a friend of my family who was a, a lawyer who specialized. Well, he, he, he essentially his job was to help uh, really wealthy people uh, pay less in taxes. Let's boil it all down. That's essentially what he did. Uh, and I remember having a conversation with him uh, back in the 80s when uh, Ronald Reagan was, quote unquote, joining forces with uh, Dan Rosenkowski here in Chicago to reform the tax code. That's what they said, to reform the tax code, which effectively was going to do away with uh, some of the, uh, the, the high tax brackets uh, that the wealthiest uh, were in so that they would pay less in taxes. And I'll never forget this guy telling me, he called me Benny, he goes, Benny. They call it reform. This is going to make so much money for my clients. And, and he was, it's just the reality. And this was, and they, I think this was in 86. Go ahead, Brendan. And they've done that three times since. And they did it drastically uh, when Trump got in. And it's one of the two things. Trump did two things. He did that tax cut and he did the three Supreme Court justices and the, and the establishment GOPs with him all the way. And you can draw, I believe, a direct line between that most recent tax cut and the most recent explosion. You know, obviously, there's all sorts of confusion when you take uh, put COVID in, but when you take COVID out, the most recent explosion in homelessness and poverty, and the one th and Biden did four or five great things with a bipartisan edge as much as he could, given cinema and mansion last year. But the one thing they haven't touched is that tax cut and you and the and it's not about driving inequality it's not it's not that i'm mad that this guy's worth five billion dollars it's i understand that because this guy's hoarding all the money you have all these other people who don't have any access to resources and wealth and that's yeah. just a fact there is simply put enough wealth in this country so that we don't have to have homelessness on the nearly the level we do and because we keep and we've done it now three major times since that time that you're talking about. But that was the start of it because we keep creating the process by which we allow billionaires to hoard money and take it from the masses and by which we devalue the average worker's value. And we and we siphon it off to go to the top and we devalue the average person's dignity and we siphon it off so that people at the top can have greater income. That's the problem with the inequality. And the Democrats. <laughs> And back in the 80s, went along with it. And they were a party of compromise, worked with Reagan on reform. So they bought into calling this inequity reform, which, Brendan, I never used the word reform. Never. Anything. I will never use the word reform, uh, especially in regards to Chicago politics or Illinois politics. But uh, in tax policy, when, when it's being driven by Republicans, don't use it. But they bought into that. And I remember the local media. And uh, you were just a kid at the time, so I, I, I doubt you were paying attention. But their attitude was like, oh, my God, our local congressman, Rosti, is at the table 
with Reagan. It's just like that Chicago mentality that just drives me crazy. Like, we should be... what, was, what was the scandal that brought him down? It was like stamps or something. Yeah, right? it was stamps. It was like seven years later, and uh, he was using uh, con- con- congressional stamps for private purposes, and it brought yeah. him down. And he lost to a Republican in a general election after yeah. winning. Uh, he, he he slipped by. Dick Simpson ran against him. That's the that's the Blago Ron Quigley seat, right? Is that the Blago Ron Quigley seat with the fifth district? Yes, yeah. very good for knowing that. Uh, after it, there was um, after uh, Rosti uh, was defeated by a Republican, I think his name was Flanagan, and then Blago came in and beat Flanagan, brought right. back to the Dems, and then Blago got uh, left to to. Uh, be the governor and uh Rahm Emanuel ran and became the congressman uh and then Rahm of course went to chief of staff god I can't believe they noticed up to, to Obama and quickly is the guy I can't I'm 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 like rain man uh even with the pain even with my mouth swelling up like a chip on your flu game this is your flu game you're coming you're bringing your a game you just I, gave the whole history of the fifth congressional district. I, unbelievable Unbelievable. And then I was about to go on this thing about how, like the Sun-Times and the Tribune, oh, Chicago, you should be so proud. Rosty's at the table with Reagan. Yeah, he's at the table with Reagan, effectively raising my tax bill because he's cutting some rich guy's tax bill. Why am I proud of that? Oh, he's the pride and joy of the Northwest side. Oh, he's a local boy made good. God, they fill our head with such idiocy. Bob Dylan wrote a song, Idiot Wind, and it's about the local coverage of the tax bill of 1986. All right, so uh, the point I was making, inequity did not seem to work against Reagan, uh, but I guess uh, here we are 40 years later, or it, and uh, it's getting worse, and so Joe Biden is uh, going to pay the, the price for it. Um, I'm going to tie what we're talking about with what's happening here with the Venezuelan immigrants and the uh, the, like the the reaction in some parts and then get you have a whole riff on this i know but i believe uh that donald trump has been very successful at gaslighting america on many fronts uh and one of which is the border i believe that donald trump when he announced he was running in 2015 uh picked up this notion and and broadcast it out that there's this, this, this dangerous situation at the border that was a threat to all of america uh and uh, that has just won the day to a large degree, and people talk about uh, immigration and in those terms, like this is a threat, this is a crisis, it's out of control. And I just said, sometimes it's so bizarre, Brendan, I shake my head in disbelief, um, like the state of North Dakota, which they're like worried about it. But here in Chicago, we're seeing people uh, in working class areas echoing Trump as they denounce the uh, Venezuelan uh, immigrants don't bring tent city to my neighborhood. Send them back. Build a fence. Build a wall. I'm like, it's like they're just repeating what they've heard Donald Trump said, and they're doing it here in Chicago, a city of immigrants. Many of the people who are saying this are themselves immigrants. Uh, it is so twisted and so bizarre that I feel it is a form of gaslighting. It is a form of brainwashing. Uh, and um, I I have don't know uh, how Democrats uh, can deal with this uh, because they're chicken to address it uh, directly and say something along the lines. We welcome immigrants. So if you're not going to say we welcome immigrants, you're kind of buying into uh, the Trump argument that it is a dangerous. It is a catastrophe it is a crisis. Your thoughts. 
Yeah, I, I'll respond both to the substance and to the political analysis you just made, but I want to push back against your predicate first. I don't think Trump created this. I do think Trump responded to the and was the first to really respond in a in a uh, kind of virulent and racist and xenophobic way, but responded to what was happening in the right uh, ecosphere for for years. Um, and and the reason, part of the reason he uh, got he he coalesced such. Um, strong support early on in the 2015, uh, 2016 primary in, in the year 2015 was both because of his history of, of racism directly as related to Obama birtherism, but because he pinpointed and ignited what was happening in, in, in right wing radio and internet as it related to uh, immigration. And, and there's both a um, both a racist and a xenophobic, but also um, you know, there's this kind of right-wing populist economic strain of thought that that isn't really grounded in fact that's been going on for more than a decade in, in that sphere that that he just pinpointed and grabbed hold of. That said, the there's always been in every major U.S. city 20, 30, 40 percent of the people um, who who are right-wing Republicans and believe in that. With every passing year, um, those cities become less and less that because with every passing year, the more a, the diverse the city is, the more culture from diversity there is, the more racial diversity, more ethnic diversity, the more different types of foods, the more different types of music, art, um, and more different types of languages and people that are present in the city is just a period of time that not only does the presence of those people of color change the politics of the city, but it changes the white people in the city. Um, and once a city becomes diverse, not just black and white diverse, but very diverse in terms of multi-ethnic, multi-racial diverse, and once a city becomes majority minority, the, the thinking of the white folks in that city changes. Um, and and, and, and that applies to cities and states. And, and I agree with you, it requires pushback on the substance of the issue. It requires Democrats saying, we know that immigrants are less violent, immigrants are more, uh, have steadier family situations, immigrants are more productive to the economy. Um, immigrants, regardless of, of nationality, regardless of race, regardless of, of color, uh, do all these things. But what we also know is that what we've seen in a handful of jurisdictions where there's been massive immigration over a short period of time that has brought those jurisdictions from majority white to majority non-white is initially much of the, the intercommunal conflict and the intercommunal violence ha actually happens often between different communities of color. What we saw in California in the late 80s and early 90s, when you had the explosion of Latino immigration and Asian immigration, was that was the period of time when there was the greatest conflict between the Black community and the Asian community, the Black community, and the Latino community. But what we also saw was because there was pushback, there was intentional drives for unity between those communities, and there was pushback against the reactionary response um, in all communities, is that over time, Though that conflict dissipated, and then when California became a majority minority state 
and Sacramento started pushing really progressive legislative issues in the 2000s and 2010s, one thing that became clear, clear is that black and brown folks were safer. And now, even though California is only about 5.7% black, um, you have Sacramento passing laws that no other state is passing, right? Sacramento, you Newsom just signed a law a week ago that gives $5,000 grants to students who go to HBCUs. There's not a single HBCU in California. There's no other state doing that. California passed a month ago the, the, uh, the Ebony Alert, which is the uh, black version of the Amber Alert, uh, designated just specifically for, for, for missing black uh, children. There's no other state doing that. And California is doing that because there's safety within a larger, when you have a larger white supremacist system, nationally and internationally, if you can get finite jurisdictions with that are living in the belly of the beast um, with, a, with a color conscious, race conscious understanding of the power, there's safety in that for people of color. And so eventually what happens is as the diversity increases, the, the xenophobia decreases, the intercommunal conflict decreases. What we know is that in every, every situation, biology, chemistry, social science, politics, conflict brings first pain and then progress and growth. And so I think the majority of people in the city of Chicago understand that immigration is good and wants real solutions. Um, I don't know if, if the majority of our city uh, alders and the majority of our city administration know that. I know the majority, I believe the majority of um, our, our city residents believe that. And I believe if enough people intentionally push the principled position of immigration is good, diversity is good, we want, we need and want these people coming here for Chicago for repopulation purposes, for economic purposes, for cultural purposes, for political purposes, for community growth purposes, community growth purposes, both growth in terms of numbers and growth in terms of, uh, in terms of who we are. I think if we continue to push that, that eventually this current conflict we're seeing will result in a lot more progress. Mm. Well, I uh, like to believe what you're saying is true. Um, I see no great movement, and you alluded to this, on the part of any elected official uh, to say, welcome to Chicago. Uh, yes, we welcome you. We need you. You're helping us. Uh, we lost all this population over the last 20 years. Uh, this is even better uh, than when it, the Amazon deal. You know, I've never heard, <laughs> I've had, I don't hear people say that. I instead hear the other thing you know, the emphasis on the crisis and the financial end and how are we going to pay for it? Uh, and, uh, but I, I hope you're correct. Um, and I kind of thought of your mom, uh, okay. Brendan Schiller's mother, Helen Schiller, a legendary older woman from the 46th ward in Uptown. Um, follow me and where I'm going with this one, uh, Brendan, when, uh, some of the, uh, protests, 
uh, erupted in neighborhoods throughout Chicago opposed to immigrants, uh, including in a Brighton Park, Hispanic community, uh, where you had uh, people in Spanish saying, get out uh, to uh, Venezuelan immigrants. They're really weird. I I just remembered the resistance uh, that your mom had to many initiatives in the 90s. Uh, and it was like a, such a heavy NIMBY attitude as uh, she tried to like, make sure that Uptown remained integrated, uh, economically integrated and uh, racially integrated, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, making sure to try to put it like a, a like not let gentrification just completely transform the community, move everybody out. And I just, the resistance that she faced and it, like, I heard the echoes, you know, it was different rhetoric and different accents and, but. Yeah, but that's a perfect example, Ben. So it was nasty, violent. I personally saw it and felt it, right? I actually, um, you know, managed her campaigns along with George Atkins the last two months. I personally saw it. It was nasty. It was vicious. And then the city, the, the board was, was gentrified in the sense that it went from the seventies, a majority, uh, low-income ward to the to the 2000s, a majority upper-income ward. But then what happened is all that struggle, all that fight led to, in 2023, Angela Clay getting 64% of the vote. <laughs> a young, yeah. unabashed lefty, uh, so-called Democratic Socialist, Black woman raised in the, in the, um, in the uh, low-income housing in Uptown won 64% of the vote because no, even though you had the, the, the right wing reactionary forces who initially gentrified uptown viewing um, Helen Schiller and the Schiller Eases and her ilk as the devil, the conversation and the legacy of the political work eventually inured to the benefit of a more principled understanding of the world. And you know, there's two, and, and you know, going back to the city council and 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 this current mayoral administration, there's two types of reactionaryism, right? There's the masses who react, the masses who react based on a perceived threat, and we know that there's no threat here, right? But there's, and 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 it's always hard to tell what portion of the masses are really reacting. We know nationally now that probably 40, 45 percent. Are really being reactionary. It's hard to tell in the city of Chicago really what those numbers are, but the 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 elect the reactionary conduct by elected officials that acquiesce to what they believe is a political um, movement or political wave or political pressure that may cost them their seat or their power is a different type of 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 reactionaryism. It's the type that can be quickly impacted. Um, by by other pressures. And so what we know is that there's a large portion of the city council, there's always been maybe less than ever now, but still a very large portion of the city council that just wants to protect their, their salary and their position, yeah. right? Um, and what we know is we have a new mayor with a very small circle um, who's trying to figure it out and really, and, and really wants to do right and, and his small circle really wants to do right, but they have to deal with all the realities of, of all of a, 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 a already set in place um, kind of city hall uh, deep state, if you will, and a set in place 
um, a, a crew of reactionary alders who want to keep their place in the set reactionary sense that they're reacting to anything that happens that may put political pressure on them, pressure on them. And so it takes time to work it out. I have full confidence that this, I, I, I do not think that this mayoral administration and the, the alders have risen to the challenge completely yet, have they even risen to the challenge yet, but I believe that they will. I actually believe that they will. All right, uh, and I have uh, faith that the Chicago Bulls will be uh, be a champions this year. So I'm going to maintain my faith in the Bulls. Yeah, and you may. <laughs> you think there's a greater chance that they'll rise to the occasion? Fair enough. Uh, all right. One thing uh, that uh, uh, the mayor uh, did accomplish um, was he negotiated an extension of the the police contract, uh, and it's going to it's going before the city council. Uh, and I was teasing all the right wingers on the north side who voted for Paul Vallis. Um, uh, to I was saying, come on, you all you north side liberals who voted for Paul Vallis, the MAGA man, uh, because you thought he would have better relations with the police. Why don't you give Brandon Johnson credit, okay, Mr. Lefty, Mr. CTU, Mr. Progressive, whatever you want to call him, cut a deal with the police. And Johnny Catanzaro, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, said, you know. He's not a bad guy. I had him wrong. I haven't heard Paul Vallis say that. I haven't heard Richard Durbin say that. I haven't heard Arnie Duncan say that. I haven't heard Tommy Tunney say that. <laughs> they're all pretending like it's still the election or they're hiding under a table somewhere. Um, so I give uh, Brandon uh, credit uh, on that front. Uh, and uh, But your thoughts in general about the police contract. I know the arbitration issue is one you really want to talk about. So take yeah. it away, Brenda Schiller. I, I, I'll give you my thoughts. Now. I want to respond to one thing you just said, which is um, I remember about a year into the Lori Lightfoot administration, um, one of her very close allies, you probably know who it is. I'm not going to say who it is. One of her very close allies, unofficial allies, advisors, who I also, who I talk to regularly, uh, about politics and strategy and other things, um, said that she said something along the lines of, well, I'm now hated both by the teachers union and the police union. That's the perfect place to be. And in my mind, I'm like, that's ridiculous. You don't want to be hated by anybody. Well, the flip side is five, six months into um, Brandon Johnson's administration, in the same week he has uh, the police union head, the racist right-wing police union head, Praising him that he that he has the head of UWF, Candy Bartley. Now I know UWF is the arm of CTU, and that's where Brand Johnson comes from. But but Candy Bartley is about as left wing activist, street grassroots as you come, and she's praising him in, in emails for UWF. The, that is what you want as a as a mayor to be able to pull that uh, off in the same week is is actually really impressive as a political measure. I know because I talk, I still talk to a handful of aldermen regularly. I know there are issues. I know there are issues in terms of people. There's concerns that this administration hasn't still hasn't gotten certain people in place. There's concerns about their legislative affairs office. There's concerns about communications with the aldermen in the budget. There's definitely concerns on the left um, on a few issues. But I think it's six months and he's actually still doing a pretty good job, despite my criticism of how they're handling the migrant stuff, just in terms of messaging on the migrant stuff. Uh, I, and I think to tie these two points together, when we talk about how sometime 
elected officials, regardless of their base beliefs, are reactionary because they react to the political pressures that they perceive at a given moment. I think the police contract and the arbitration is the perfect example. Now, I don't know much. As you know, I'm only in Chicago one week out of the month, um, and I'm still in Vegas, and I still play poker four days out of seven, although I'm doing Chicago work now a little bit, cannabis, legal, and political three days out of seven. But from here, I don't know much. But what I have perceived happened was, as it relates to this police contract, is that this administration was set to go ahead and accept the arbitrator's decision that disciplinary action, that severe disciplinary action had to be done basically in secret in a private arbitration, not the way it's been done for 40 years, 50 years, however long in front of the police board. And that they were set to do that weeks ago, even before there was any public announcement, I was told by some people they were set to accept that and go along with that. And that there was severe pushback from the left on the inside and they realized that that was a mistake. Now, let me give some other context. Two different times when my mother was alderman and I was now grown and either active as a, uh, as a journalist or active as a lawyer, the police contract came up and it included arbitrators' decisions that my mother and one or two or three or four other aldermen namely probably Freddie Lyle and maybe a couple others did not want to go along with. And I remember conversations with my mother when they would go talk to Mara George's and the corp council would act like, there's no way you can never reject an arbitrator's decision. It's the, the, the earth will fall down. We'll all go to hell. The, the stars will come tumbling down if you reject an arbitrator's decision. And they can never explain the legal basis behind that. Um, and I got the sense that maybe a few weeks ago, maybe some of the law department lawyers were telling this administration the same thing and just took some real pushback from some, from some in the left to say, why? Tell, tell us how the world will fall apart if we reject this arbitrator's decision. Because the arbitrator's decision was bad. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear. Um, regardless of whether you're a police abolitionist or not, regardless of whether you want to redirect police funds from non-police functions and give them civilians to do them better or not, regardless of whether you believe police solve crimes or not, regardless of whether you believe incarceration creates crime or not, almost everybody believes that a bad cop, a cop who commits crimes should be removed from the police force. And that's been very hard to do for years and years and years. Taking away the public transparency of when a, uh, of the proceedings of, of a cop being disciplined and making it some little secret thing that some no-name private uh, arbitrator who has absolutely no accountability does would have just enshrined the Mezhanowskis, the Jerome Finnegans, the Watts, the Burgess, every, the Guevara's. I can go on and on. And that's just in my uh, 18 years of being a, a criminal defense civil rights attorney. Those are, they, I, I can name you 50, the, the Area 5 gun team with Sean Daly and, and, Vin, and Vince Napoli and, and, and FICO. I, we can go on and on the, the, the number of corrupt cops. Well, that would double, triple, quadruple if you would create a secret tribunal and just give one unaccounted um, arbitrator the ability to decide whether or not they get removed from the force. So it was a terrible arbitrator's decision. It would have been a terrible policy decision. 
And I think, I don't know, this is all speculation on my part, honestly. I think this administration probably got some bad advice initially from its core council, not it's but from somebody in law department, um, whoever was dealing with these issues. Uh, and that because there was really strong pushback from some on the left and some education on the issue, we got the, this, this mayor decided to, he wants to push to reject, reject that. Now it's up to the city council yeah, it's up to, city to reject council. it. Mm -hmm. But let's be clear on another dynamic. <laughs> You have like 15 to 18 really progressive aldermen in the city council. You have like 15 to 18 really conservative aldermen. Everybody who's in the middle is essentially black aldermen, the black moderates on the south and west side. And th that means this mayor who won 80% of the vote in their wards has a lot of say. Um, this is not, it's not exactly the same thing as with Rahm or with Daly. It's just the political reality that this mayor has a lot of say over the middle. Um, and, and this can continue to be a democratic legislative body in terms of the city council. But if this mayor pushes, particularly on issues that impact the black community, and there's no doubt that rogue police officers impact the black community, then 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 he should then he should be able to to persuade a majority to go his way. And he needs 30 votes to reject this, and I think he can get it. Is that it? You need thirty to reject it. Is that the? I think uh, that simple, I believe state law. Majority I think it. no. Well, simple majority majority be thirty six. I think state law is three fifths. So three fifths is obviously thirty. Uh, a uh, simple majority is twenty five because the mayor yeah, gets to be the mayor. vote. Uh, I always say no. that to people. All you need is twenty five. You, you know, you I'm not. I'm not a labor lawyer, but I think it's thirty for this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it was a good riff, uh, Brendan Schiller. Don't believe. The thing about I don't know, it's just speculation. I'm in Vegas playing cards. This guy's on that horn every freaking day. Okay, he knows more than I know. He talks to me, everybody's talking. If you ever call Brendan, he takes your call. I got another guy on the hold. I'll let me get back to you. But so don't, 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 don't that that setup. I was smiling through the pain, through the chipmunk cheeks. Uh, at that setup, man. <laughs> oh, me, just some guy in Vegas. I don't know. All right, so yeah, it's going to be two separate votes. I predict um, there will be a decisive vote for the contract part, uh, and uh, I do believe. Um, well, I don't know. I'd have to. I have to. I, I have to do a little call around uh, myself and see uh, whether. Um, and it's also how hard will Brendan Johnson uh, uh, push. Uh, to to vote no on the arbitration part, you know, I I don't. He signaled that uh, he favors a no vote on it, even though he negotiated or his his uh, lawyer well, acting on his behalf negotiated it. Franchick, <laughs> got a smile at that. Uh, and um, so we'll see. All right, uh, let's close this down with a transition to uh, a column I wrote about rats, and uh, just love to get uh, Brendan Schiller's reflections on uh, this. So let me just set this up. Uh, my beloved Chicago reader had a special is issue dedicated to rats as in the city has a lot of four-legged creatures uh, running around. Uh, and um, it's always been this sort of fight against the rats. Uh, and so they asked me to write a column, and the first thing that popped in my mind were two-legged rats and the kind of rats who uh, <laughs> flip uh, and uh, like uh, become stool pigeons or tattletales uh, or wear a wire in order to... They did something wrong. They were caught doing something wrong, and the feds got them good, and the feds 
get them to uh, give inside dirt uh, on other politicians. And so they essentially they become spies for the feds. Uh, and so I just reflected on uh, the three most prominent rats uh, of my lifetime. And they would be uh, John Christopher, who wore a wire uh, and uh, upper, Operation Silver Shovel in the 90s, I want to say, late 80s, uh, that brought down a lot of politicians uh, where he was running illegal dumps uh, and uh, was getting paid off to do that. Uh, Danny Solis, we talk about him a lot in the show, the former zoning chair, the chair of the zoning committee, good, strong ally of Mayor Rahm uh, and Mayor Daly wore the wire uh, after he got caught caught doing something wrong he wore a wire and uh led to uh, ed burke's indictment uh and to a lesser degree michael madigan and then william o'neill and uh william o'neill uh was caught stealing a car and uh with when the fbi put the squeeze on him he agreed to become a spy and spy on fred hampton and the black panthers and you may have seen the movie uh the black was judas and the black messiah tells that story um I believe William O'Neill's impact, he, he committed suicide in the early 90s, Brendan Schiller. I believe his impact uh, was so destructive. I believe, well, he was the lower part of the, the whole movement against the Black Panthers. Um, so destructive to this country and to the city in particular, and we're still feeling uh, the effects of it uh, to this day in many ways. Uh, why don't you uh, take the floor and give you some of your reflections on William O'Neill? Yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with um, that. I, I think not necessarily William O'Neill, but COINTELPRO. Um, you know, obviously, I was not born when Fred Hampton was assassinated. When I was a kid, I would have never guessed at that time that we would have gotten to this point where it would have been really understood and appreciated citywide what who Fred Hampton um, was and what he could have become, and and really the the real positive role that the Black Panther Party played. Because when I was a kid, although I was raised around a bunch of folks who, who used to work with the Black Panther Party, um, the general uh, propaganda narrative, whatever you want to call it, was that um, Fred Hampton was a thug and the Black Panther Party was a gang. Um, and that thankfully changed over time to what the truth was. And, but one of the things that happened, and this was when I was a really little kid, was the um, was Jim Montgomery and the People's Law Office prosecuted the civil rights case on behalf of, behalf of uh, Fred Hampton's family. And out of that discovery came a lot of what we know about COINTELPRO. And in part, that's how we also learned about William O'Neill. So William O'Neill as a rat, sure. But William O'Neill was just one small part of a much larger program that was specifically designed to create divisions and conflict um, amongst all the black leaders, not only in Chicago, but everywhere. And, and what's funny is, and I don't wanna get into specifics, but what's funny is to this day, I, you know, I know half a dozen, maybe more, I know a couple dozen, um, you know, elders who were part of the Black Panther Party because of, you know, my family connections and relationships. And I and I had worked closely with with half a dozen of them over the last several years at the Westside Justice Center in terms of exhibits, in terms of cannabis stuff, and 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 I love and respect all of them. But to this day, several of them are still at each other's throats. And when you drill down as to why, um, you know, there may be some modern issues, but there's always 
stuff from 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago they bring up that was clearly, whether directly or not, has to be somewhat of a product of of what the FBI and COINTELPRO did. And, and this was, these were a group of potentially great leaders who could have done uh, great things for all of our communities. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, William O'Neill is just one somebody who was uh, caught up in that and used and used directly and that resulted in a way that resulted in the assassination of Fred Hampton, you know, and, and I don't know, I, you know, I've seen, I know what, uh, my people say about him. I know what I've read about him. I've seen maybe half a dozen videos of, of him. Um, and so, sure, maybe he would have spent the last 50 years doing great things. Who knows, right? Um, uh, but I think the real point is, is that you had a real community of people who came together in the late 60s. Well, black folks came together in the late 60s, mostly on the West Side here, who represent a much larger national movement who really... Uh, are great people, the ones I know that are still alive today are great people, but they were affected 50 years later by this really targeted program of paranoia and divisiveness and conflict. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think you're gonna name rats, uh, two-legged rats that uh, the greatest impact uh, directly on the city of Chicago was William O'Neill in terms of the role he played larger, uh, larger. Yeah. Uh, that was well put. And uh, I think we'll end it there. I urge everybody to uh, check out the story I wrote uh, about rats in Chicago. And also, if you want to get a flavor of William O'Neill uh, to follow up what Brendan said, uh, just Google his name. Uh, you'll find on YouTube uh, an interview he gave uh, with documentarians for Eyes on the Prize. And they have the whole interview on display. And so in many ways, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, just a fascinating a portal into the past and you could just see he's so tortured by the life he led the role he played and not long thereafter after he gave that interview i forget how long uh, he committed suicide uh so that uh, you could just check it out william o'neill is his name and you'll find it on the internet all right brendan i know you got places to go and people to see so i'm gonna let you go thank you very much and uh, I made it through my Michael uh, Jordan moment in Utah, and you're my Scotty Pippen. Okay. <laughs> All right. <Thank laughs> All right. <you. laughs> thank you very much, Brendan. Always a pleasure okay. talking politics with you. Also, want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job all the time. And I think Brendan will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, if you got busy this week and missed out on any of the Ben Jarofsky shows that dropped, you can always find them at chicagoreader.com. Bonus interviews, columns from Ben Jarofsky, newsletter drops from the reader, so much cool stuff. You can follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram, at Benny J Show. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader